when trying to achieve the balance of spirit and truth worship, I have to think of the fullness of God. And so I'm calling this Trinitarian worship. I want my worship to be fully expressive to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And I believe firmly that if this is going to be done, it needs to be done intentionally. And so how do we worship Trinitarianly, or how do we uh, how, do, how do we worship the fullness of the Trinity in our worship? Um, because spirit and truth worship means, by definition, it means that there is a Trinitarian experience happening. Uh, there is worship to the Father, and this is the the God of the Baha'i, of the Bible. This is Jehovah. Uh, this is Yahweh. Uh, this is worship to His Son Jesus. This means it has to be uh, the right Jesus, the Son of God. Uh, he, he who uh, all things through Him were created, and not one thing was created without Him. The preeminent One, the firstborn of the dead. And so, having a good Christology is going to be really important to Trinitarian worship. And finally, uh, the Spirit. A good pneumatology is going to be important in Trinitarian worship. And I'm actually going to do a whole nother podcast on pneumatology. Um, and I think I'm thinking right now too, I should do one on Christology too. Um, but the study of Christ, the study of the spirit and how they interweave, interchange, um, what their, what their kind of jobs are in and through our lives, in and through the building, encouraging, strengthening of the church. Um, but a Trinitarian worship experience is going to be expressive towards father, son, Holy spirit. Um, when I think about worship to the Father, I think that that is uh, the part that's about reverence. It's about bringing a reverent, humble, contrite spirit before God. Um, it's about being sacrificial in worship. It's about laying prostrate before God, about uh, bringing yourself down to nothing, realizing the vastness and bigness and greatness and majesty of God. To worship in the sun now is to be uh, thinking through the cross and the implications there for our lives. Uh, so there is a there is a tone of sacrifice there, and then it's to be thinking through the victory of the resurrection. Uh, that's why our worship should be uh, it should be victorious. Uh, it should have an expression of victory because the resurrection is proof that God is victorious and that His plan of redemption and rescuing humanity uh, that He worked out before the foundations of the earth uh, was completed in and finally through the one man, God man, Jesus. Um, so our worship should contain uh, the word Jesus a lot. It should be about Jesus. It should be a historical narrative about, and I'm, I'm thinking through mainly, you know, the songs that we're singing, the lyrical content, but it, it should have a flavor of, you know, remembering the cross. I think of Hebrews chapter 12 right now, consider him who endured such hostility against himself, lest you grow weary of doing good. So there's this constant reminder. It's a constant reminding my heart uh, and my spirit and my mind that Christ, he, he gave himself on the cross and he was raised in victory. And I therefore need to give myself in sacrificial worship, but stand in the victory that is available to me. I think of Hebrews chapter 10, um, that we went over in a, a grace-filled culture, that we have our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Now that that imagery right there is would be the high priest sprinkling the people after the sacrifice were met to say, hey, this blood that's sprinkling upon you is symbolic of the mercy that has been uh, uh, given you given to you on your behalf. 
in the same way our heart is sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Every time we come to any platform to offer a gift of worship and to lead people in worship, our hearts are sprinkled, reminded by the blood of Jesus that we have no reason to be guilty. We have no reason to be ashamed. And the rest of the verse would say, let us hold unswervingly to this truth we confess. That there's a boldness that now comes from the reality that Jesus gave his life and was has been risen from the dead on our behalf. He is alive, and and I think that that that's another good point right there. Is that when you then you when you worship in the fullness of the Trinity, you're bringing a reverence, you're bringing a boldness, and you're worshiping in victory to a God who is alive. He is alive. He has proven it. Uh, he, has, he, he revealed himself to 500 plus. Uh, he, he was documented by eyewitness testimony. The Savior that we worship is alive. Our worship should be alive. I, I think this is an argument for why our worship should be loud. Uh, the, the Psalms say, make a loud noise. I mean, it's because our God is alive. We have the victory, and that is Jesus' worship. And of course, thirdly, the Spirit. The Spirit has to be evident in our worship. I wanted to read from uh, 1 Corinthians 14. This is a great, a great passage here. It says, but if all prophecy, and, and the, 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 the whole context here is the gifts of the Spirit being used in and through the church. If all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Man, this should be the atmosphere of our worship, that the Spirit of God is moving so tangibly and in such power, unquenched, ungrieved, that an unbeliever can walk in and just by the things that are being uttered from our mouth, the secrets of his or her heart are revealed and he falls on his face worshiping God and declaring God is in this place. When the spirit is taken out of worship, then God's presence cannot dwell in worship. It cannot dwell in that moment. Um, I'm actually going to make a whole podcast talking about cessationism, which is the belief that the gifts have ceased uh, uh, with the apostles. And I really want to unpack that because I think that the cessationist belief has um, serious implications uh, for worship. And I would argue that it sucks God's presence out of worship. We need to have a fullness. And I mean, just the, just the thought of spirit and truth worship that has been laid as a foundation for us by Jesus himself in John chapter 4, that we're trying to find this balance between spirit and truth, just those words. How can you take the movement and the gifts of the spirit out of spirit and truth worship? You can't. You're left with truth worship. You're left with being kind of swung left and not having a balance between uh, affections and, and liturgy. I would argue that the Spirit of God is, a, is absolutely uh, a peace that cannot be lost and cannot be forgotten. We need the movement of the Spirit. We need the gifts to be present. We need uh, affections to be there. We need heartfelt adoration to be there. And when you can balance that with worship of the Father, when you can balance that with the Trinitarian experience, then you're bringing awe. 
you're bringing reverence. You're, you're writing songs that are filled with doctrine and theology and truths about God, truths about Yahweh, but they have this beautiful balance with heartfelt emotion and affection and the gifts being poured out and prophecy being evident. And then unbelievers walk in and the secrets of their heart are exposed and they fall on their face and they say, surely God is in this place. I don't think this balance happens by accident. I think that we as worship leaders, part of our job is to make sure that we are creating a Trinitarian experience, that we are offering up intentional worship to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And when we can find that balance, then we are achieving spirit and truth balance. And like we talked about before, God is looking for such to worship Him. And if God's looking for it, He's going to find it.